This is Radio Influence. This is Beyond the Badge on Radio Influence. A look inside the biggest and most controversial news stories you need to know now. One of the country's most relied upon law enforcement analysts, Vincent Hill. After an exhaustive, almost year-long investigation, all of the prosecutors and agents involved in this case have come to the conclusion that insufficient evidence exists to charge either officer with a federal crime in connection with this incident. We don't normally publicly announce the declination of charges in a matter, particularly in a situation like this, where there will be a state investigation to follow. But we simply felt that making a public statement was the right thing to do in a case that meant so much to so many. However, we must still be careful not to impede or jeopardize the integrity of the state investigation. Breaking news tonight here on Beyond the Badge. You just heard from Corey Admonson, the U.S. attorney down in Louisiana. And what he was referring to was the shooting death of Alton Sterling. And as you know by now, the Department of Justice has decided not to press federal charges against the officers involved in this case. And one thing I want to point out before we dive deep into this is you heard him say this this U.S. attorney for Louisiana, you heard him say that there's still a state case possible against these officers. And I want to talk about that tonight. I want to talk about what the Department of Justice said in their findings. I have the official report that they put out and I want to dive really deep into this case. And, you know, when the shooting first happened last July of 2016, it was me right here on Beyond the Batch that said the shooting was justified. And I gave you a bunch of reasons why. And it's really funny that the reasons I gave that the shooting was justified are right here in this Department of Justice report. So I want to talk about that. I want to talk about what could possibly occur in this state case right here tonight, Beyond the Badge. Let's go. All right, let's go back to last year, July 5th, 2016. And Alton Sterling shot and killed by two white Baton Rouge police officers. Um, And of course, we know right after that, there were protests, there were riots in Baton Rouge. We know that Police officers in Baton Rouge were killed in response to this. They were set up ambush style in response to Alton Sterling, who his attorney said was a good guy, an upstanding citizen who was not doing any criminal activity at the time of the shooting, which I'm going to discredit here later on. So Alton Sterling was shot. Here are the facts of the case. And I've said it before. I'll say it again. I'll say it until the day I leave this earth. Police respond to crime. They don't respond to color. They don't sit there and wait for someone to call and say, hey, there's a black guy walking down the street. Police don't sit around in their cars for eight hours, 10 hours, whatever, just waiting for that one call that says, hey, there's a black guy walking down the street. He looks like he's up to something. So police get this 911 call from this store, this convenience store, that a male black in a red shirt fairly large, was selling CDs, but also was armed with a gun that he had pointed at someone. So the individual called 911. Guess what happened? Police showed up. Guess what? Those two officers who were assigned in that patrol zone happened to be white. Now, I can assure you the dispatcher 
did not dispatch that call and say, hey, we need two white officers to respond to this scene. No, the two officers that responded were assigned to that patrol zone or they were the closest call car to that call. So they were either assigned that patrol zone or they were the closest to the call. Now, remember when this all started, it was like a 30 second video that we saw. And the first thing I said was, well, let's not jump to the conclusions. And at the end of the day, guess what? Alton Sterling first, he met the description, male, black, large, red shirt. Guess what officers find? A gun. Guess what you hear in the video? He's got a gun. He's got a gun. Don't move. So we hear all of that. Now, immediately, immediately, of course, everyone says it's racial. Everyone says it's unjustified. Everyone says it's a violation of civil rights. It's excessive force. All of the stuff we've heard time and time again, right? But everyone wanted an outside agency to look at it. Remember, this was still during the Obama administration. So they send it to the Department of Justice and the Department of Justice cleared the officers. They said there was insufficient evidence to file any federal charges against the two officers. But before I read what the Department of Justice said in their report, let me explain to you and walk you through what I saw from the uh, point of view of a police officer. Now, take race out of the color. Just close your eyes and imagine this. You get a call about a guy with a gun. You tell said guy with the gun, hey, put your hands on the hood of the car. The guy does not comply with your commands. So you attempt soft, empty hand control, which means you put hands on him because at this point, you don't know if he's got a gun or not. He resists. The officer pulls his gun, points it at him, at which time Alton Sterling puts his hands on the hood of the car. But as they grow, go to grab Alton Sterling again, he resists more. He resists actively. He resists forcefully. The fight goes to the ground. And then you hear gun, gun, gun. Now, here's what's important to the layman out there who still says it was excessive force and it was racial. Here's what's important. In the video, you can see that Alton Sterling is not handcuffed, i.e. meaning he still at any given moment could have retrieved that weapon. So anytime a police officer sees a gun based on the use of force continuum, the police do not have to go through all the other steps in the use of force continuum before they can escalate to deadly force because the gun that Alton Sterling had automatically and immediately escalated that situation to deadly force. Therefore, the officers don't have to go to taser, which they did, which is in the DOJ report, which I'm going to get to. They don't have to go to pepper spray. They don't have to go to Aspaton. Once they see that gun and once it is in Alton Sterling's immediate possession, which means he can grab it. It wasn't down the street. It wasn't in the trunk of his car. It wasn't at the back of the store where he would have to run to get it. It was in his pocket. Once that happens, that situation has become a deadly force situation. So then you hear three shots. Alton Sterling later dies. Now, to me, as a black man, 
as a former police officer and as a citizen who would have the right to protect myself, to me, the shooting was justified based on the fact that there was a gun there. So I want to touch on something really quick. His attorney, uh, the, the attorney for the Alton Sterling family, said that Alton Sterling was not involved in any criminal conduct at the time of the shooting. Well, that, sir, is untrue. He was illegally selling CDs at the store. He was a felon who had sexual acts with a juvenile, had served time for possession of marijuana, had actively resisted police before with a weapon, a gun, and a bunch of other charges which made him a convicted felon. So just the simple fact, let's take the CDs out of it. Okay, everybody's got to make money. I get it. Take the CDs out of it. He was in possession. Alton Sterling was in possession of a handgun as a convicted felon, which alone is a federal offense, which usually will get you 10 years in prison based on the safe neighborhood program that most cities, most states have. So for his attorney to say, well, he wasn't involved in any criminal conduct at the time of the shooting is false. No matter how you slice it and dice it, had Alton Sterling not had the gun in his possession on July 5th, 2016, this call would have gone totally different. Would they have cited him for selling CDs at the store? Maybe. Or since the call was about a male black with a red shirt with a gun, let's say Alton Sterling complied and they didn't find a gun. Guess what? Alton Sterling may have gotten a citation, may have gone to jail on a warrant if he had a warrant. I don't know. But guess what? Alton Sterling would be here today. Remember, I've said before, Officers don't determine the use of force. They don't determine escalation. The suspect determines escalation. Police don't just show up, start throwing people on the ground, kicking people, pulling guns out, contrary to what you may have heard in mainstream media. That's not what happened here. Now, there is an argument. Now, the family is saying, well, the officer pulled the gun out on Alton Sterling. But keep in mind, he was tased first. He got up. The officer pulled a gun out, pointed it at his head, and said something like, I will kill you, or something like that. Now, here's the thing. There's probably no doubt in my mind that the officer did say that. But let's think logically here and rational. Police received the call about a male with a gun. The male that matched that description was resisting the officers. The male that matched that description was tased by the police. So guess what? If you've already been tased and you get up from a taser like it doesn't affect you, what do you think your next steps are? It ain't pepper spray. It's not soft, empty hand control. This individual has already basically shrugged off a tase. And don't forget that the call itself is about a male black with a gun. So until police can prove that he doesn't have a gun and he's actively resisting, what do you think is going on in this officer's mind? So let's be honest here. You don't think I haven't pulled out my gun on a few black males and said, I will kill you if need be. If you don't comply with my commands, if you don't show me your hands, if I believe you have a gun, 
Absolutely, I have. Was it racial? No, it was in that split second. My training, my instincts told me if I don't do this, I could die or my partner could die. It had nothing to do with race. It had to do with the split second decision that that officer had to make at that time. So anyway, in the video, you can see the officer reholster his weapon. The struggle gets down on the ground and you hear gun, gun, gun. He's got a gun. Don't move. Don't move. He's got a gun, 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 gun. Keyword being gun. Keyword being gun. Then he was shot three times in the chest, three times center mass, just like police are trained. Now, it doesn't say if the target is laying down, the suspect is laying down, don't shoot center mass. It doesn't say if the target is laying down, then shoot him in the hip. And then once in the buttock, it doesn't say that. It says in training, eliminate the threat. And the threat was Alton Sterling in his right hand being able to get to that gun. Now let's dive into what the Department of Justice has said. And I'm going to read this directly from their report. I may paraphrase a word here and there, but for the most part, it's coming directly from their report. In the overview, the department conducted a 10-month comprehensive and independent investigation of the events surrounding Sterling's death. Federal agents and career prosecutors examined evidence from multiple independent sources, including all available, all available footage from police vehicles that responded to the scene and the body-worn cameras from the responding officers, cell phone videos of the incident, interior and exterior surveillance video footage from the store where the shooting occurred, evidence gathered by the Baton Rouge Police Department Crime Lab, Baton Rouge Police Department documents related to the shooting. But they also went one step further, and it says they reviewed the personnel files and background material for both officers involved. And I, I want to touch on that because I think it's very important because I'm assuming because it wasn't stated and it wasn't released that there was nothing in those officers personnel files to suggest a that they were card carrying members of the Ku Klux Klan racist or b that they had prior complaints of excessive force, especially deadly force. Again, they responded to a call of an individual with a gun. Now, back to the report. It says, The investigation revealed that at approximately 12.30 a.m. on July 5th, 2016, an individual called 911. An individual called 911 from a location near the Triple S food market and reported that he had been threatened outside of a store by a black man wearing a red shirt and selling CDs. Now go watch the video. Alton Sterling is a black male wearing a red shirt. So again, police did not respond just because they were looking for a black man. This was a description given by the 911 caller. The caller reported that the man had pulled out a gun and had pointed the gun and put the gun in his pocket. The call first disconnected, but he called back a few minutes later and reiterated his report. So the call disconnected, but the guy called back and still wanted to give the same report. Dispatch relayed that information 
to Officer Lake and Salamani, who responded to the Triple S, where they saw Sterling wearing a red shirt and standing by a table with a stack of CDs. Wow. So, the caller says this guy is outside the store selling CDs in a red shirt. He has a gun. He pointed it at me. He put it in his pocket. When these two officers who were dispatched, dispatched because they got a call for service. Again, they weren't just cruising the neighborhood looking for a black man to kill. They were dispatched. They see Alton Sterling wearing a red shirt and standing by a table with a stack of CDs at 1230 in the morning. Hmm. The subsequent exchange between Sterling and the officers happened very quickly with the events from the officer's initial approach, which, based on the use of force continuum, is officer present. That's presence. That's step number one. The initial approach to a struggle on the ground to the shooting happening in rapid succession from the moment when Officer Lake gave his first order to Sterling through the firing of the final shot. The entire encounter lasted less than 90 seconds. More specifically, from the start of the officer's physical struggle with Sterling on the ground, through the firing of the final shot, the encounter lasted less than 30 seconds. And that's about what we see on the cell phone video that was first released to the media. Now, here's what's important in this whole timing situation. You can't prove racial intent in 90 seconds, right? You dang sure can't prove racial intent in 30 seconds, when you're on the ground struggling with an individual who now you know has a gun because you've seen it. So how do you go and say that's racial, racially motivated, has racial undertones? You can't. It's impossible. And keep in mind, these two officers were just responding to that call. They didn't go out and look for Alton Sterling that night. They were responding to that call. Multiple videos captured portions of the entirety of the officer's interaction with Sterling. These include cell phone videos, surveillance video from the store, and video from the officer's body cam in a uh, police vehicle. FBI video forensic experts also provided enhancements of relevant videos for the portion of the struggle that immediately preceded the shooting. The video shows the officer as they arrived on scene and engaged with Sterling. The video shows that officers directed Sterling to put his hand on the hood of a car. When Sterling did not comply, did not comply, did not comply, and no, it doesn't say it three times in the report. I'm just stressing it because I've said compliance will get you home at night. Non-compliance is going to automatically escalate something to a use of force, right? So, when Sterling did not comply, the officers placed their hands, soft empty hand control, on Sterling, and he struggled with the officers. Officer Sol Salamani then pulled out his gun and pointed it at Sterling's head, at which point Sterling placed his hands on the hood. Now, his family's saying, why'd you point the gun at his head? Again, heat of the moment, there's a call about a guy with a gun, you match that description to a T, you're struggling with me. I may logically think you have a gun on your possession. After Sterling briefly attempted to move his hands from the hood, 
Officer Lake then used a taser on Sterling, who fell to his knees, but began to get back up. Remember how I said tasers don't always work? They don't always keep a suspect down until the time you can control them? Guess what? Alton Sterling, who's a pretty big guy, got tased, but he began to get back up. That stuff's not like you always see on the movies where you tase someone, they're just, and they can't move. No, it doesn't always happen that way. I've seen it. The officers ordered him to get down. They were trying to give him every opportunity. The officers ordered him to get down, and Officer Lake attempted unsuccessfully to use his taser again. So, I don't know if he tried to tase him, it went in and it didn't work, or he missed, but he tried it again. So, they weren't automatically trying to go to deadly force at this point. He got tased again, or they attempted to tase Alton Sterling again. But it did not work. At this point, Officer Salamani, who had his weapon out, holstered his weapon and then tackled Sterling. Again, not going immediately for deadly force. Both went to the ground with Officer Salamani on top of Sterling, who was on his back with his right hand and shoulder partially under the hood of a car. And you see that in the video, right? So Officer Lake joined them on the ground, kneeling on Sterling's left arm, while Officer Somali attempted to gain control of Sterling's right arm. And it's not uncommon for an officer to put a knee in someone's arm. Guess what? To make sure they're not moving around and getting guns. That's what this officer was trying to do. Then you hear Somali yell, he's going for his pocket. He's got a gun. He's got a gun. Gun. And if you don't believe me, Go watch the video. You can hear the officer say this. He wasn't making it up. Officer Somali then unsuccessfully attempted to gain control of Sterling's right hand while Officer Lake drew his weapon and yelled at Sterling again, again, directing him not to move. Less than one second later, during a point at which the location of Sterling's right hand was not visible to the cameras, Officer Somali again yelled that Sterling was going for the gun. Officer Somali Salamani, I'm probably saying his name wrong, then fired three shots into Sterling's chest. After the first three rounds were fired, Officer Salamani rolled onto his back, facing Sterling's back with his weapon still drawn. Because at this point, they don't know if, if uh, Sterling is, is uh, the threat is eliminated just because he's been shot three times. Officer Lake stood behind both of them with his weapon drawn and pointed at Sterling. Sterling began to sit up. He was shot three times, but he began to sit up and roll to his left with his back to the officers. So they still can't see what he's doing at this point. He's got his back to them. He's rolling. He's moving. Just because he was shot three times doesn't mean that threat had ended, right? Sterling brought his right arm across his body towards the ground and officer Lake yelled at Sterling to get on the ground. I don't know why he would yell that. He was already on the ground, but maybe it's the heat of the moment. As Sterling continued to move, Officer Salamani fired three more rounds into Sterling's back. Within a few seconds, Officer Lake reached into Sterling's right pocket and pulled out a 38 caliber revolver. Investigators later confirmed that Sterling's gun was loaded with six bullets at the time of the exchange. Now... Here's what's important here. Again, for the layman, when I've said that police are trained to shoot until the threat stops, 
Here's a prime example of an individual who was tased. It didn't work. He was shot three times. He was still moving. He turned his back to the officers. They perceived the threat because his right arm was going towards his pocket. The officer then fired three more shots into the back of Alton Sterling. Now, take police and suspect out of this. If someone breaks in your house and they're trying to kill your wife, your child, and you shoot them three times and they get up and they still try to kill your wife or your child, what are you going to do? Are you going to say, well, shoot, I've shot him three times. Maybe in a few minutes he'll die. But in those few minutes, maybe he won't be strong enough to kill my wife and child. No, what you're going to do is you're going to continue to fire until the threat in your house has stopped. And if you're on the street and someone is trying to rob you or take your life and you fire at them and they still come and they try to take your life, what are you going to do? You're going to continue to fire until that threat has stopped. And that's what these officers did here. The officers fired until the threat stopped based on their training, based on their perceived level of the threat. That's exactly what they did. It wasn't because Alton Sterling was this black guy with a gold grill. It's because this black guy with a gold grill had a gun that they recovered that had six bullets in it. Now, you can do the math. That's three per officer. That's two in this officer and four in that officer. That's one in this officer and five in that officer. The fact is he had a gun loaded with six bullets that he could have used on those police had he gotten his right arm inside that front pocket. Now, there's going to be those that argue, well, he was still laying down. He couldn't have shot him. Well, I'm going to call bullshit on that because I can assure you he could have shot them at that close range laying on his back. How much aim do you really think that would have taken? Zero. So, yes, he could have shot them laying on his back. Now, there were two witnesses that the federal investigators talked to, the FBI. And it says that they could see Sterling's right hand and that they indicated that his hand was not in his pocket. Now, here's where it gets a little interesting, right? Because, of course, the FBI wanted to talk to witnesses. So there's only two witnesses that reported to the FBI that they could see Sterling's right hand, and they indicated that his hand was not in his pocket. Now, just like in the Michael Brown case where there were contradicting statements from witnesses, however, now this is coming from the report, not Vincent Hill, however, because of other inconsistencies in their statements and because of the fact that parts of their accounts are contradicted by the videos, their accounts are insufficient to prove the position of Sterling's right hand arm beyond a reasonable doubt at the time the shots were fired. Huh. So they say they saw his right hand, but based on video, it's inconsistent or insufficient to prove the position of his right hand. So the feds weren't making this up saying, well, these witnesses are just unreliable just because they're black. No, the video contradict, contradicted what they said, and it was insufficient to prove what they said. Hmm. And here's something, too, that makes a lot of sense to me, 
and let it sink in. Although the department found no reason to doubt the sincerity of the witness's accounts, the incident happened in an instant and the witness may have had no reason to be specifically watching for the precise location of Sterling's right hand at the time of the shooting. Wow, that is so true. Because in the heat of the moment, everyone's just watching the scuffle, right? They're like, oh, wow, there's two white dudes beating on this black dude. And the two white dudes are racist because they're police. And the black dude didn't do anything because he's a black guy. And we need to get our cell phone out and we need to record this. And this needs to go on World Star and blah, blah, blah. But no one's really watching where Alton Sterling's right hand is, right? There's a reason that eyewitness testimony in court is really hard to prove because a lot of people, A, don't see what they thought they saw, or B, are inconsistent with what they actually saw. Well, it was a blue car. Well, actually, it was black. Well, it looked blue. Well, it was a green car. Well, I thought it was purple. That happens all the time in court hearings. And when people are caught up in the heat of the moment, they aren't watching things like, where was Alton Sterling's right hand at the time of the shooting? Where was his left hand? Was his shoe untied or was it tied? Was his gold tooth facing south? Was it facing north? People aren't watching stuff like that in the heat of the moment. The only people watching stuff like that are the officers because they know at any second it could be their life. So that officer knew he did not see Alton Sterling's right hand or he did not have control of Alton Sterling's right hand. And maybe, just maybe, the officer did see Alton Sterling moving his right hand. He told him several times, don't move. They tased him. They tried to tase him again, but he was still fighting. They knew there was a gun there. Why can't this case be what it is and not be about race and not be about this guy that was a lovable guy that never did anything to anybody except for the little 15-year-old girl he had sexual acts with and the people he sold dope with and the people he assaulted and all this other stuff. Why can't this case be exactly what it is? Two officers that responded to a scene of a male with a gun who happened to be black, that male who happened to be at the scene, who happened to have a gun, resisted the officers. They did not comply with the officers' commands and... They saw the gun, the officers, and there was a perceived threat of imminent bodily injury or death against those officers. And the officers, based on their training, more importantly, based on the law, used deadly force to protect their lives and the lives of everyone else. Because let's add one more factor in there. Let's just say Alton Sterling got up and started shooting at those cops. And at that exact moment, there was that 10-year-old kid that had snuck out of the house to go to the store to get candy and his parents didn't know and he caught a stray bullet to the noodle. Who's to blame then? Alton Sterling? Would we even hear about this case? Or those police who failed to protect and serve that community? That is the bigger question and let's make this case what it is, not what you think it should be. So now there's a possible state case against these officers. And, you know, the family's going to focus on the fact that the officer pulled out the gun, said he was going to kill him. I personally, and again, you're hearing this first on Beyond the Batch, don't think that's going to have any bearing on the case. Because, again, split second, this dude may have a gun. He's 
not complying to my commands. He's resisting arrest. I think I can articulate why I pulled my weapon out and said, I will kill you. It's not the first. It's not the last time police, whether they're white, black, Hispanic, Chinese, Asian, alien. It's not the first time that police have said that to a suspect. And it's not the last. I don't think it's going to have any bearing on the state case. What I do think is going to have a bearing on the state case against these officers is the exact same thing that had bearing in the federal case, the evidence of the case. Alton Sterling did not comply. Alton Sterling was a felon in possession of a weapon. Alton Sterling had a history of resisting arrest armed with a weapon. Alton Sterling had a weapon that night and Alton Sterling was not in physical custody i.e. handcuffed in the back of a police car, searched and the weapon recovered and retrieved from Alton Sterling at the time he was shot. That is what is going to have a bearing on the state case against these officers. Do I think there'll be charges? I do not, because contrary to the Black Lives Matter movement and all of these other activists who have gotten involved in this case and the riots and the protests, and the officers that were killed in Baton Rouge, God rest their soul. And for the idiot that was arrested last week for threatening officers in Baton Rouge because there was no justice for Alton Sterling. All of that has nothing to do with the facts of the case. The facts of the case, in my opinion, and again, you hear here first on Beyond the Badge, is that this shooting was a clean shooting, like I said last year. And I see no charges against these officers in Baton Rouge. And since, of course, we're talking about Baton Rouge, it would only be fitting that tonight's 10-7 segment focuses on Baton Rouge and focuses on those police officers shot and killed July 17th, Sunday morning, shortly after Alton Sterling was killed, basically in a retaliation, an ambush against police officers because of the shooting death of Alton Sterling. And let this sink in. If Black Lives Matter, did Corporal Montrell Lyle Jackson's life matter because he was a black man serving with the Baton Rouge Police Department? He, police officer Matthew Gerald and Deputy Sheriff Brad Gurafola were all killed that Sunday after they received reports of a subject walking along the roadway carrying a, a rifle as they responded to the area they were ambushed by the subject, again, all because of the shooting death of Alton Sterling, a justifiable shooting, according to the Department of Justice. So let that sink in. As we talk about Black Lives Matter, did this officer's life matter? Montrell Lyle Jackson shot and killed July 17th, 2016, in retaliation to the shooting death of someone who was a convicted felon, who was committing a crime that night. Godspeed to those officers. Again, my prayers to those families. Thank you for listening, my loyal listeners, right here, RadioInfluence.com, and I will see you next week. Good night. To continue the conversation, get updates on the show, and to find out when you can see him on television, follow Vincent on Twitter, at Vincent Hill TV. That's at Vincent Hill TV. This has been Beyond the Badge.
on Radio Influence. This is a Duffified Live with Chef Brian Duffy Quick Fix on Radio Influence. Opening restaurants these days is tough, man. I mean, it's just not the same world that it has been for all these years. Um, you know, you hire a general manager and you go that way and, and – uh, and you and the general manager hires staff and hires a chef and and you start to move forward with that and one of the big things that we are struggling with these days is that you know 15 years ago which which doesn't seem like you know may sound like a long time ago but we're talking about something that really wasn't that long ago we had like almost half the amount of restaurants that we have right now so we've increased all of these restaurants and gastro pubs and fine dining and nightclubs and and destination spots all over the country to the point that we're now like pulling from the bottom of the barrel uh, when it comes to employees at times. And it's really, really a tough thing to do. I mean, it comes down to, you know, what, what are we doing to hold on to our employees? And, and I'm struggling with this at my own place right now because it's just the way that it works. At one point in Philadelphia, there was like 950 restaurants. We have over 9,000 restaurants right now. And it's a tough world to get into to deal with employees. So, so I, I, I talk to people all the time about the best way to do this. And because of the fact that I've been on the road for as much as I have and because of the fact that I've been away from my home, my family, my businesses, uh, you know, there's a little bit of a struggle that's going on right now. And the struggle is real. I hate to say that in a, in a, in a hashtag quoted kind of way, but it's the truth. The struggle's real. What are we doing to for our employees? It's not the old days of you're lucky to have a job because it's just not there. That's not the way that this game works. So when I hire, I place ads all the time. Um, I, I do stuff in different different mediums, whether it be newspaper, whether it be – which I don't know who reads a newspaper anymore. But in some areas, you have to use a newspaper, whether it be a newspaper or Craigslist or Indeed or um, you know, Fobo or any of these different sites, Monster, whatever it is. You're selling yourself. You're selling your business to somebody because it's not just the days of I need a job because to retain people, you have to engage people. You've got to give them a reason to work and stay. I know it sounds fucked up, but it's the world that we live in. People want something for what they do, and it's not just a dollar rate anymore. Duffified Live with Chef Brian Duffy can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and of course, RadioInfluence.com.